The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola America, a Tier 1 solar module producer and LED light manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company has a proven track record of being a partner for project developers looking to maximize their return on investments. Call 415-852-7421 to find your local representative or head on over to their website at renasola.us. For the week of August 28th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello, welcome to the show. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. In this edition, D.C. regulators denied Exelon's bid to acquire the distribution utility Pepco. The deal would have made Exelon the largest holder of utilities in the U.S. We will talk to one of the local organizers who opposed the deal and hear about why the story illustrates the dramatic changes underway in the electricity sector. Then we'll try our best to understand how turmoil in China and in stock markets around the world intersect with energy markets. And in our last segment, we'll talk about yet another big announcement on renewables from the Obama administration. I could try, but um, I would probably fail to talk about these subjects alone. So who better than Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw to help me and you digest all the week's news Catherine is in an undisclosed location in the woods of the Adirondacks, uh, nicely breaking up her vacation, coming back to reality for an hour to talk to us. She's a partner with 38 North Solutions. How is life away from D.C.? It's great. And thanks to HughesNet satellite on our woodshed, uh, newly installed, I'm able to bring the podcast to you from our lake cabin. So are you just are you overlooking the lake right now? I am. I am. It's beautiful. Jealous. Well, you sound a little bit more relaxed. Uh, Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital, and he is in Washington, D.C. this week, although not next to me. Um, anything new and notable to report this week, Jigger? No, I'm here from the uh, Department of General Services offices in D.C., and I did a speed test just to make sure we had enough bandwidth here, and it was the highest um, result on the speed test I've ever seen. It was like 70 megabytes a, a second or something. Yeah, I saw you uh, tweet about that right before the show. Um, so let's get into the show. This week, the Public Service Commission of Washington, D.C. put a stop to Exelon's plan to acquire the mid-Atlantic utility Pepco. This is not just your ordinary business story, though. It's a story about local empowerment, about how utilities are dealing with the dramatic swing in America's electricity market, and, and the tough decisions regulators are grappling with as they consider how to promote a cleaner grid. So I want to start off with some quick background before we introduce our guest. Exelon is one of the biggest utility holding companies in the U.S. Uh, in fact, if it had acquired Pepco, it would become the biggest. And its legacy business has revolved around operating power plants in the wholesale market. And it is very dependent on nuclear for that reason. But, but under pressure from cheap natural gas, uh, re- increasingly from renewables, weak growth in demand, Nuclear is just not doing that well in competitive wholesale markets. And that's one of the reasons why Exelon has been so adamant in its opposition to the wind tax credit. In order to expand its revenue base and help pay for those struggling power plants, Exelon's been buying up distribution utilities. Um, And in that line of business, it can depend on regulators to guarantee a rate of return for investments. And with enough companies under its control, perhaps make up for its poor performance in the wholesale markets. 
So Pepco, with 800,000 customers, became a target. Exelon was so eager to buy up Pepco, it offered nearly $7 billion for the utility, a billion dollars more than what Pepco is actually worth. And, of course, that would be a very good deal for Pepco shareholders, and it would have created, as I said, the largest utility holding company in America. Uh, but, but city officials, regulators, and local community organizers, as we'll hear, were not convinced that the deal would be good for ratepayers. Many feared Exelon would raise rates quickly because it did not promise that it uh, would not raise rates, uh, raise rates to make up for its struggling nuclear business. And, and opponents also fear that the company would hinder local development of renewables because it has uh, opposed other distributed technologies and, of course, has been very um, opposed to the wind tax credit. So D.C. regulators cited these factors and others as reasons for rejecting the deal. What happens next? Joining us to talk about this saga is one of the central figures in the local opposition to Exelon. Anya Schoolman is the founder and executive director of the Community Power Network, a grassroots organizer of renewable energy policy. She also founded DC Sun, a co-op here in the city that has helped 700 people in the city go solar. And last, last year, she was named by the White House as a champion of change for solar deployment. Anya, welcome to the Energy Gang. Thanks. It's fun to be here. Explain the opposition's side to this deal. And, and when I say opposition, I'm, I'm not just talking about a small number of activists. I mean, support for the acquisition was in the single digits, I think, here in the city. So a lot of people were opposed to this deal. What, what were you so concerned about? Um, well, you have to realize that I represent solar interests and that our coalition was much broader. And it really included ratepayer advocates and um, a whole range of people that were concerned about democracy and self-determination in D.C. But I can really speak to the renewable energy advocates the best. Um, we were concerned about a company that had a track record of opposing local control and local deployment of renewable energy. And, and what opposition have you seen that made you think that this uh, deal would strip local power from folks like you? Well, you know, we. what was amazing is when we started our opposition, and I think I was the first person to speak out publicly against the merger in an op-ed in the Post um, more than almost a year and a half ago, um, we were just concerned. We thought, you know, this is a company, they don't have a great track record, they oppose the wind production tax credit, what are they up to? Um, and we were fundamentally concerned that they had a conflict of interest because the majority of their business is in wholesale power generation, not in the utility business. And we were used to dealing with the utility that people had worked long and hard to make sure they didn't have a conflict of interest, that they were, you know, wires and billing and that they bought on the wholesale market, not that they owned generation. But as we got deeper into it and through the discovery process, we just dis we discovered that Exelon, in fact, had a very deep track record of opposing core solar policies like net metering, of funding front groups like Addison Electric to fight net metering. And that one of their one of the things we got out of the discovery process was that one of their corporate guiding principles was to oppose community solar, which is a policy that we had been working on and passed unanimously in the DC Council. We started working on it in 2011 
passed the bill in 2013, and we were still struggling with the implementation. So we were in the midst of building a community solar program, and now our utility had a board-approved corporate guiding principle to oppose this policy. I guess what I'm curious about is um, the art of the deal. I mean, I get the facts on the side of Exelon and Pepco and other pieces, but I'm more interested in you know, how were you and Rob Robinson and others able to really get this coalition of people together? And, you know, what was the reception at the city? What was the rep- reception at the council? You know, how does one oppose a merger like this? Well, it's a, it's a complicated story, and I'm going to try to make it easy. And I think there's two parts. The part that was the base that we laid before the merger, and then the second part is the coalition we built to fight the merger. We did our first solar co-op, the Mount Pleasant Solar Co-op in 2007. We took 45 houses solar in 2009. By 2010, we'd done a a couple more co-ops. By 2011, we had strategically placed co-ops in every political ward in D.C. So each time we build a co-op, we got another council member. So by 2011, we passed the bill unanimously to um, shore up DC's SREC market. And again, by 2013, we passed another bill to strategic to pass community solar. So we built a base and the base consists of a co-op in each political jurisdiction with an independent leader who spoke for their community having helped hundreds and hundreds of homeowners go solar. Last year, we did 50% of the market in D.C. Um, So we were hands-on helping people. And again, one of the tenets of organizing is you start where people are, and then you bring them along. So where are people? And this is true all over America. People want to go solar. And so we start there. We help them get it. And by helping them get it, we build a relationship that's very robust, that then we can turn into political capital for big fights like this. So that was kind of the base that we were looking at. And I could talk more about that if you guys want to go in deeper. But then the coalition we built was very broad. And um, it also took years to nurture the relationships. Fundamentally, we've been building bridges with the low-income and ratepayer advocacy community since before we started the community solar bill. So we've always fought for a solar market that had access and equity for everybody in D.C. And to ignore those issues, renewable energy advocates and environmental advocates, they'll always lose because those are real legitimate concerns. So we built those bridges built the trust. And so when the 21 groups that are part of the Power DC coalition came together, we weren't meeting for the first time. We'd helped them with their issues. We'd supported them. They'd helped us us with ours. We had shown that we care about equity, access, rates, those kinds of issues in the way that we deployed our solar policy all along. So we had the base to build the coalition. Yeah, but was the mayor actually against the merger? I mean, it seemed to me like the mayor was going to roll you guys um, in D.C. And, you know, that the, the, in the end, the, the opposition to the merger was a surprise to me, but it didn't seem like a surprise to you. Well, we, we orchestrated the opposition. And the mayor, as far as we can tell, is still in favor of the merger. And we're very nervous that she's going to go and, you know, try to negotiate a deal and reopen the whole um, issue. 
but we boxed her in the best we could. Um, we tried to get her to take a position against it. And I think what we did succeed in do is getting her not to settle beforehand, which was instrumental in giving the Public Service Commission the, the cover um, to oppose the merger. But what we did is we had a systematic approach. Again, what renewable energy advocates have is people. We have the numbers. We don't have the money, we don't have the power, but we have the people. So we did a ground game. DC's divided into 40 political jurisdictions called advisory neighborhood commissions or advisory neighborhood councils. We went to all 40. And these are elected offices. We deployed hundreds of volunteers. We turned out 2,000 people at meetings. And we got uh, 27 out of the 40 advisory neighborhood commissions to pass resolutions against the merger, which is unheard of in D.C. That meant going to community meetings, you know, sometimes three nights a week um, all over D.C., in every ward in D.C., and especially in the low-income neighborhoods. So we built that political base. Then we got six members of the D.C. Council and the Attorney General all speaking out against the merger. So systematically, uh, and we turned out thousands of people at the public meetings, did thousands of letters. So we basically just systematically boxed in the mayor and we hope that we can continue that momentum and prevent the deal from happening further. So Anya, it's interesting because Delaware, New Jersey and Maryland all approved. And I'm wondering if that's because they don't have that ground game organized um, if it's because there are fewer customers that are affected, I mean, what do you think the difference is between D.C. and the other state jurisdictions? Um, you know, the advocates on the ground in um, Maryland did an amazing job. And as you guys probably know, it was really close. It was a 3-2 decision there and looks like Exelon basically bought off the deciding vote. So um, it was close. And the fact that it was close and that the dissent in Maryland was so powerfully worded also really helped us because our public service commission could look at that dissent decision, which we were able to completely enter into the record in our proceedings. Um, so we had an inside game and an outside game. So we were doing all this organizing on the outside that I described, but we were also formal interveners on the inside as DC Sun, and we had excellent counsel. So we were able to get all of the pertinent facts from the other jurisdictions into our record. So going last in the end helped us a lot. Uh, let me ask you, Anya, if this were a utility, are you inherently opposed to this type of uh, merger? Or was it just that Exelon itself has a track record that you don't support and that you think is um, anti-clean energy? Like if this were another utility that came in and promise to shore up clean energy programs and support the kind of work that you're doing on the ground, would you have the same kind of inherent opposition? No, not at all. Um, in fact, we fully expect there probably will be another merger, and we just want a company that respects what the people of D.C. want. Um, one of the things I just want to point out that's also really different, getting back to Catherine's question, um, between D.C. and Maryland is that one of the criteria that our public service commission is required to examine by law is the environment, whereas in all the other jurisdictions, and I think in the country, it's just, you know, reliability, rates, et cetera, et cetera, governance, things like that. So we were the only one, with the, we call, they call it public factor seven, which is 
by law, they're required to consider that. And that was through the foresight of, of one of our uh, council member, Che, who was one of our champions who passed that after being told in many other previous um, proceedings that the Public Service Commission told her, well, we don't have to look at the environment. We're not allowed to look at the environment. It's not in our bylaws. So it's a really important point, that, that legal difference. The other thing is that's different about D.C. is home rule. And Exelon really just discounted how sensitive people are about the fact that we don't have home rule here and that sort of self-determination is such a sensitive issue for people of D.C. You know, we already have, you know, taxation without representation. And the idea that our, you know, basically what we consider to be our hometown utility was now going to be in Chicago and we weren't even going to have a seat on the governing board really struck home, and they were very, very insensitive to that. So, Anya, one of the reasons why I really wanted you to be on the podcast is because, you know, I've been doing things in, you know, the solar industry since 2003 on the policy level, and there really is this extraordinary leadership at the ground level in all of the states that solar is successful in, whether it's Arizona or California, but also New Hampshire, Missouri, et cetera. And and it's and these folks are pretty broad. I mean, like for instance, I mean, you played a big role in figuring out who you wanted on the Public Service Commission, and also this environment thing with the DC Public Service Commission. Mary Shea has only been a council member for what ten years, so that's been added in the last ten years. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the keys is that um, you can't just come together at the moment, right? These are long games. It's a ground game. It has many levels and many arena. And you have to put the pieces together, you know, sometimes many years ahead. So, you know, if you're not passing a solar rule this year, maybe you're passing new criteria for the Public Service Commission or you're looking at who you're getting elected. You have to play in all the arena or you're just going to get slammed because they have so much more power and so much more money than we do. So can I ask you a question about politics, Anya? Because, um, you know, one of the things that I'm most concerned about is, you know, you've got the politics of solar policymaking, which is the Solar Alliance, which is now part of SIA. You've got the Energy Foundation and others that are funding you. As I understand it, you didn't get any funding from any of these people um, to do any of your solar work. But also, you know, folks like Lee Peterson down in Georgia that, that got the PPA rules passed, I don't think he got funding. You know, how's your relationship with the broader sort of solar policy community? I mean, I, I don't have funding from the Energy Foundation. We have a, a, some funding from local funders, um, people who are really seeing the impact we're making in state. And we also generate income from doing, you know, helping people go solar. We take a small fee for every house that goes solar. Um, what the community, whether I'm talking to SIA or I'm talking to the Energy Foundation or these other big, you know, the big funders in the climate movement, they don't seem to realize that you need to invest in multi-year infrastructure. And everybody's still so enamored with the sort of the internet that you can like push a button, buttons or pay for a list and all of a sudden, you know, a thousand names will show up. Names don't mean anything unless there's real relationships behind it. And that takes a multi-year commitment. So we just scrape it together. And honestly, in D.C., for years, it was a zero-budget operation. And I actually fought 
not to be a nonprofit for many years because I didn't want to deal with the fundraising and I didn't want to deal with the, you know, the IRS. And we did it with a zero budget and we had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers. So again, part of the key is giving all this energy and all these volunteers and all these people that are so passionate a place where they can make an impact. And literally, like the on um, was it Tuesday when the decision. I spent most of the day just hugging people. Like that's I was I had almost thought I had to go to the hospital at the end of the day. My shoulder hurt so much. We were just hugging people, you know, and thanking <laughs> you people all day long. Related, hugging yeah, related hugging injury. related injury. I mean, I hugged hundreds and hundreds of people and said, "Thank you for everything you did. Thank you for everything you did." Because there's so many people care about this, but they need to be kind of let loose and given the opportunity. It's a serious injury. That's the third leading cause of shoulder injury among community activists. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jigger, let me ask you like about, about this deal, right? So when it came to Exelon's clean energy policies, clearly the community organizers were very concerned here, but we can also look at um, Baltimore Gas and Electric, which Exelon bought up. Commonwealth, Edison, and these are companies that are still doing some pretty innovative stuff with demand-side management and renewables, and they haven't really killed off any of the programs that were in the works, and in fact, they have scaled up in recent years. So on whole, what do you think we can say about Exelon? Look, I mean, for better or for worse, Exelon's challenge is they bought a lot of nuclear plants, and you can't shut down nuclear plants. Even though the variable cost of running a nuclear plant is less than two cents a kilowatt hour, the amount of money that they're getting paid for those nuclear plants are way lower than they ever expected because of so much wind and solar power you know, changing the merit order curve on, on the wholesale markets. And they're very, very afraid that distributed generation will continue to stream onto the grid when we're, in their eyes, in a position of excess power. Right? We have too much power in this country. That's what they believe. Yeah, and don't think that they're just sitting back not doing anything. They spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year lobbying to get rid of the production tax credit for wind. Between Exelon and First Energy, they're trying to kill Order 745 for demand response. And they've also managed to get language into the House Energy Bill that defines reliability in a way that would only allow traditional fossil and nuclear plants to be considered reliable, which I think is a really nefarious way to try to attack distributed generation, which if you use the right metrics could be far more reliable. And Anya, you mentioned that there was a board approved policy in opposition to community solar. I had never heard of that. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, we we discuss, we got it in the discovery process, and the only reason I'm allowed to talk about it is we were able to get it into the record because they um, made it a confidential document, um, but it's now in the public record if you go through the proceedings, and they basically said that they opposed the concept of community solar, and it was board, the board voted on it and approved it. So it wasn't as if it was like, you know, VG&E or one of the satellite entities were against it. They it had gone all the way up to the central central office. Which is pretty um, shocking, right? Because, I mean, TJ Diora, our friend, is at SEPA now. And, you know, SEPA, you know, claims, and I think is right, to say that community solar has actually been embraced by many utility companies around the country. And so, you know, for Exxon to actually have gone to their board and to oppose it, you know, seems to fly in the face of all the success that SEPA has had around the country with community solar. 
for us, another sort of big eye-opening piece of the, um, what we got out of the discovery were the comments that they put in in the New York Rev proceeding, where consistently in every different, whether it was about storage or demand management or community solar or any of the different, you know, millions of categories in that proceeding, they were just consistently saying, well, what about the impact on capacity? What about the impact, you know, long term? And it was a fully defensive, foot dragging approach to all of those different initiatives really just guard, you know, designed to guard their nuclear capacity. And so you could really see kind of the sausage being made of them, you know, trying to stop new policies from emerging out of that process. Anya Schoolman is the founder and executive director of the Community Power Network, a grassroots organization uh, that promotes renewable energy policy. She also founded DC Sun, which is a co-op here in Washington, D.C. that has helped hundreds of people in the city go solar. Thanks again. Appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being awesome, Anya. All right, this is the point in the show where we get to talk about our supporter, our sponsor, Renesola America. Renesola is a Tier 1 solar manufacturer, but did you also know that it's a lighting manufacturer? Renesola manufactures and distributes fully certified lighting products for the residential, commercial, and utility sectors. You can enhance your project with Renesola LED lighting solutions for all applications. Not only will you save on costs through bundled offerings, you'll save on time too. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses featuring its products and over 32 local sales reps across the U.S. To find their products, to talk to a rep, or to scope out their services, call 415-852-7421 or go to their website at renesola.us. I preface the next segment by reminding our listeners that none of us are economists, but we're going to talk about recent financial turmoil as best we can in the context of energy, uh, like oil and clean energy. So this week brought a flurry of worrisome financial developments. China's stock market fell 16%, bringing the market down 40% since June. The U.S. stock market tumbled in tandem and commodity prices, including oil, continued their slide downward. That might be good short-term news for consumers in markets like the U.S., but bad news for oil producers and countries that rely on commodity exports. So what does all this turmoil mean for energy? Uh, Maybe we'll start with oil. Per barrel prices dipped below $40 this week. They've since climbed back up to around $47. I haven't checked them in the last few hours, but they rose after the Commerce Department estimated second quarter annual growth at uh, 3.7%, which was well above earlier projections. But experts expect oil prices to remain low as the Chinese economy slows and many other countries that rely on commodity exports are suffering in the wake. Um, Jigger, what do we make of all this? Like, I think a lot of people are trying to figure out if oil prices are partly a cause of the market panic or uh, a result. So, like, as you look at this, how are they feeding into each other? Um. So, so I think that the oil markets as a whole um, obviously have experienced a lot of turmoil. You know, Bloomberg just came out with an article uh, yesterday saying that the oil industry needs to raise a half a trillion dollars just to endure this um, price slump. Um, you know, and, and, and basically that's because if you look at like what's happened to Chevron, I mean, they've got like six major projects going that are like $20 billion over budget, right? You've got you know, Shell, even with these low oil prices, still trying to drill in the Arctic, which there's no way in hell they're going to make money on that. 
that's a decade-long process. Well, yeah, because they keep running their equipment to ground on the way up to the Arctic, which is interesting. But, but I do think that oil, I mean, oil prices have this interesting psychological effect. So like some of the things I'm hearing now is some of the projects in the Caribbean are slowing down because electricity prices have fallen below 30 cents a kilowatt hour there now. Um, you know, India, surprisingly, is still, you know, marching forward with their solar, um, even though diesel prices have come down. And so I don't know that oil is at the root cause of this. I mean, I think that the bigger challenge for the clean energy sector is that... Um, is that when the Fed had its rates down as close as possible to zero, most people that were investing fixed income were looking for higher returns. And some of the places that they put their money was in emerging markets. Um, so the real question around this financial crisis is what's going to happen to the emerging markets financing, right? I mean, that's, to me, the big, big thing that I worry about. And what happens to the emerging markets middle class that have been growing and, as you say, have been starting to invest, then you know, what happens as their commodity prices continue to fall? So on, on the middle class piece, I, I don't think that enough people in China and India really own stocks to matter. So I think that you know, in China, the middle class is still seeing 6% GDP growth. And so you know, Tim Cook even wrote an email to Jim Cramer at CNBC and said that, you know, even though I don't usually comment on this kind of stuff, we're selling iPhones like crazy in China. Uh, well, you know, there is a growing middle class in China that um, are acting as armchair traders. And I heard some analysis on NPR a couple of days ago, and this woman was speculating that that because so many of the really good high-profile traders had gone on vacation throughout August— that that was one of the reasons why China's and the U.S. Um, markets were performing so poorly. So I don't know if you can really prove that, um, but it was a, an interesting piece of speculation. And, uh, you know, although it might not be huge, there is definitely a growing class of armchair traders in China that are impacting the market. Um, you know, your point on... So there are a couple of things to talk about here. One is the impact on project developers, and one is the impact on oil drillers. And I think we'll go to clean energy project developers second. And just just very briefly on the oil drilling stuff, I mean, Shell is still going ahead with Arctic drilling. I know Stat Oil's projects have slowed down. Um, but we haven't seen this massive abandonment of these um, unconventional projects like we thought we might with oil down around $40 a barrel. I mean, we have not seen oil prices this low for many, many years. Um, so, the theory that low oil prices will kill off some of the worst polluting unconventional sources, uh, do we know if that still stands, Jigger, as we as we look at what's happened over the last year and a half? Well, you know, I, I do think that the that I mean, as oil prices have come down, you're seeing a historic like reduction in investment in the tar sands um, and other places. And so um, so I mean, I do think that's happening. What you haven't seen, is the predictions that people made that the U.S. frackers um, would basically stop drilling and we would have a sharp decline in oil production in the U.S. We haven't seen that. Oil production has gone flat, but we haven't seen um, a huge reduction in oil production in the U.S. And so the U.S. frackers are, are being amazingly resilient in terms of continuing to invest money into more oil drilling. Yeah, it's been really amazing to see how resilient the drillers have been in in the U.S. I, I don't think a lot of people expected 
this many drilling rigs to be in place and this much oil and gas to still be pumping um, with oil prices at this level. But it, but it could be temporary, though. I mean, you know, a lot of the oil drillers had hedged out their oils, so they may still be selling at $100 a barrel because of the hedges. But there's about a half a trillion dollars worth of debt that's coming due over the next few years, according to Bloomberg. Um, so oil producers have to figure out either how to refinance a half a trillion dollars worth of debt or pay it back. So how about for specific equipment? How about for renewable energy equipment? I reached out to an economist friend of mine who said that they thought that a sort of minor devaluation might make Chinese panels a little bit cheaper. But I don't know that that has absolutely any impact on our industry here. Yeah, I mean, so like what's happened in the last four or five months, I mean, has nothing to do with this financial crisis, but it does have to do with the strong dollar, is that the Chinese um, module manufacturers have been very aggressive with the large um, solar installers for 2016, locking up dollar-denominated sales. Because the Chinese um, companies were predicting this devaluation of the yuan, and so they wanted to be in U.S. dollars, um, and they were offering lower prices in U.S. dollars than they were in you know, uh, other places like Europe. I, I, the big question for me is what's going to happen to renewable energy developers. You talked about the impact of foreign project development jigger, and perhaps you can unpack that a little bit more. But you know, here in the U.S., the solar industry has really benefited from near zero interest rates. And you know, the feds are looking at raising interest rates um, in October, perhaps. As they look at this financial turmoil, I think a lot of people are expecting them to delay um, they don't want to cause mass currency devaluations in other countries. I think they want to see how the U.S. will ride this out. And, you know, higher interest rates will certainly make project development in the U.S. more expensive. So this feeds into the um, how expensive money will be for solar companies here in the U.S., which is, of course, of vital importance as we look at a step down on the ITC. All these things play together in a very uh, interesting way. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that the solar industry is impacted by interest rates. But I think that the part that may be slightly less obvious to people is that we're, we're technically at almost zero interest rates now. If the Fed were to raise interest rates, it'd raise it by, let's say, a quarter point, so to 0.25%. That's not going to impact us. I mean, we're that's going to impact mortgages because mortgages are literally calculated based on exactly what the Fed rate is. But we're far enough away from the Fed rate that if the Fed raises interest rates to 0.25 or 0.5%, um, we're not going to get affected by that. Um, we are affected by a rising interest rate environment more broadly. And on the margins, people like Sun Edison or others who are you know, getting ultra-low cost debt for Terraform and some of those publicly traded vehicles, they may have to pay slightly higher interest rates. But for people getting home mortgage, um, sorry, home loans from SolarCity or Sunrun or Dividend Solar or SunGage or whatever, they're not going to be affected if the Fed raises interest rates to 0.25%. So apologies to our listeners. We, our Skype connection here is a little tough. Uh, I know we can hear both Catherine and Jigger, but we're going to have to experiment with a new platform here. Uh, it's a little scratchy, but we'll make do with what we have. Um, on this point, Jigger, I'm interested in how it might impact um, the investment in yield coast because investors have been searching for better opportunities beyond treasury bonds 
And, um, you know, renewable energy projects have increasingly benefited from that shift, uh, particularly yield co's. And if interest rates go up, then investors could move in a different direction. I guess I'm trying to figure out what that threshold is and if it's as big a deal as some think it is. Well, I think at first it's important to note that, that Sun Edison's Terraform yield co only went public last year. So it's not like we've got five years of track record on yield co's. Um, the most recent yield co that they took public, which was Terraform Global, um, clearly had some issues. You know, I think that, that there is this notion that anyone with $100 million could go public. That's not happening, right? You saw the failure of SolWind. Lightbeam has been pushed out. Um, so I think you're going to see only Tier 1 players being able to do um, yield codes. So that's the SunPower First Solar one. That's NYLD from NRG. That's Nextera's, et cetera. And then you're going to see it bifurcated into two camps. So you're going to see folks like Sun Edison that were promising very high growth. And then you're going to see people like the First Solar SunPower folks and NRG, I think, that are slow and steady wins the race. Uh, you know, both constructions have... Um, analogs in the MLP, the Master Limited Partnership Space. So, But at this point, I think yield codes are here to stay. I don't think that yield codes have been deemed to be a failure in any way. I think that you know, it's really just um, that the yield codes are only a year old, and so people are still trying to figure all this stuff out. But I think yield codes are here to stay. And can you just explain a little bit more about what you mean about access to money for international projects? I'm not sure well, I quite pro- understood your point. So the problem with international projects is let's say that you, Stephen Lacey, decided to buy a CD in the bank, right? And the bank in D.C. is offering 3% interest for seven years in a CD in the bank, right? That that same CD for seven years in India is offering 10%, right? So you might be like, why the hell would I put my money in D.C.? Why wouldn't I put it in India? Well, the reason is because India is giving you money in rupees. Right? And the current exchange rate between rupees and dollars is, let's call it 60. So if that exchange rate goes to 80, then putting your money in at 3% interest in the U.S. would have been a better deal than putting your money in India at 10% because the exchange rate went away from you. Right? So during this financial crisis, exchange rates have been going all over the place in Asia because China's slowdown means that you know, people are betting on um, other economies getting negatively impacted and their currencies have therefore slipped a little bit. And so what happens in that situation is that investors in the U.S. who were thinking about investing in Sun Edison's um, India projects are now thinking, I don't know if I want to be stuck in the rupee for more than like two or three years. I mean, I certainly don't want to be in the rupee for 20 years, right? Which is why Terraform Global performed so badly and the interest rates went way up on Terraform Global because people were like, I got to get paid way more interest if I'm going to own you know, uh, stocks that are going to be investing in emerging markets. So let's go on to the third topic and and round out the show here. Uh, I was in Stockholm this week, so I missed the big clean energy summit hosted by Senator Harry Reid in Nevada. It's uh, it's put on every year. It's a, it, it features a tons of prominent political and business people. There are often big news items announced there too. The last time I was there was actually in 2012 when the backlash. Uh, after Solyndra was still ongoing and the Obama administration was playing defense. And so much has changed since then. This year, the president walked on stage with a new kind of swagger, a swagger that he's displayed when 
unveiling EPA regulations and talking about clean energy policy broadly in D.C. and on on the stump. Um, He delivered a very strong speech for the crowd and a nice package of goodies for the clean energy sector. I want to capture a piece of his speech first. This is where he calls out opponents for spreading misinformation about the industry. America always comes down on the side of the future. We've always been a people who reach proudly and boldly and unafraid to that more promising future. We refuse to surrender the hope of a clean energy future to those who fear it and fight it and sometimes provide misinformation about it. Because the naysayers always underestimate what the American people are capable of. And we prove that every day. The package announced by the president was even stronger than his speech. It included a billion dollars in loan guarantees for novel distributed energy projects, clarity from federal agencies on the rules for property-assessed clean energy, $24 million for research into advanced solar technologies, and a whole bunch more. A lot to talk about here. Catherine, after a long delay, we've, we've finally got some action on, with these loan guarantees, very different from the original set of loan guarantees, which supported huge, first-of-a-kind utility-scale projects. This new program is designed to support distributed technologies. What's going to qualify here, and what do we know about the program this far? Yeah, so one of the most interesting developments on the loan guarantee program is that they're going to now be able to finance projects out of green banks. So um, some of this is just getting state-affiliated financial entities to be able to access these funds, which I think they're going to be able to do it more willingly um, than individual companies, which have found that it is, it's been a bit of a slog to try to go through the loan guarantee process. But I think having um, these green banks be able to take advantage of this will be able to bundle uh, distributed energy projects, and I think they'll just be able to get a lot more done. The the cool thing about this announcement, and by the way, I was not out there, obviously. I was at my cabin. My husband and I were total dorks. We were leaning over my Mac, watching it live on their White House website. And people who were there said that he was just so different. He was very um, relaxed, humorous. Um, you could tell from that clip. You know, he was he's pretty much, you know, he's he's winding down his um, you know, his tenure, and yet he's in a great place. He's And clean energy is a really happy place for him. So he's got the clean power plan out. He's shown, he's done a ton on clean energy, and now this is like a, a great set of things that he can announce in a very relaxed, humorous way. And it just seemed like, you know, he's in a much better place to do this. He's done everything I think you can physically do as president without getting Congress to act on these issues. Well, if we're talking about what he could physically do, he could walk up on a ladder, strap on a harness, and actually install <laughs> solar on the roof. <laughs> We're going to no, get him to also, do that. You could actually also deploy the $80 billion of super ESPC money. Right. I know, I, I know that's but, been a, a big sticking point for you. But no, I, I think um, politically, that's absolutely correct. I, I picked up on the same thing. And this is sort of post-frustration Obama, right? He's realized that he is just not going to work with opponents. They do not want anything to do with his clean energy policies, but the vast majority of the country supports what he's doing. So he's going to walk on stage with swagger and talk about this stuff in an inspirational, aspirational way. And, you know, now that he's realized that he needs to do that in order to prove his legacy over the next year, he's doing it in a much more relaxed way. And it is a very noticeable change. Well, and I, I do think that, I mean, just specifically on this property assessed clean energy bond stuff that they announced, um, you know, I really do think 
that this was a huge reversal by the White House, right? I mean, um, you know, the FHA and Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac really slapped down um, pace back in, you know, 2011, 2012. And so to, for him to get this unstuck and get this going is really amazing. And we're on track to deploying, you know, a couple billion dollars, I think, of pace loans over the next two years. Just to give people a little context in case they don't know, um, a couple of years back, federal housing regulators expressed opposition to PACE programs because the PACE loan would have to get paid back. In the case of a default or if the homeowner moves, the PACE loan would have to get paid back first before the mortgage. So because that loan is senior to the mortgage, uh, federal housing authorities were not supportive. And and now that they have more clarity on the performance of these loans and the Obama administration has directed them to come out with more with clearer rules, this is a really big deal for these programs. And they'll probably start to flourish in states other than California, which has really seen the bulk of activity. Yeah. They're going to underwrite this home energy score that's going to really help them measure and um, and give them more bor- borrowing power as a result of having better metrics. Yeah. It's like it's very clear that the administration was thinking, what is one of the most important touch points here for unlocking massive investments in distributed energy and energy efficiency? And clearly, PACE was working. The deal flow was still pretty strong, even with the lack of clarity on rules. And I think this is one of the more interesting developments across the entire span of the Obama administration. I'll be honest. Oh, it's a big deal. Um, And just a quick shout out in his speech, you know, he actually used the words no money down solar. He was very focused on economics. He didn't talk about climate at all. So that was another another thing that was really interesting because he sees that this is really about economic growth. No, this this new this new swagger that Obama's got has made me proud. I mean, I mean, I've been a big opponent just because I knew that he had it in him and he wasn't doing it. Yeah. And now that he's doing it, I'm I'm really proud of what he's doing. I think it's fantastic. And I do think it's going to lead to an extraordinary tailwind, you know, behind our our initiatives and our entrepreneurial efforts. Well, listeners, let us tell you something you do not know. And um, Catherine, I will give you the first word from the Adirondacks. Oh, gosh. Well, because I'm here and we don't have TV, uh, we just we read the New York Times. We go out to the little local store and buy it. I do uh, now that we have the satellite and you watch political speeches. But I also catch up on things like Politico influence. And one of the things that I've actually been able to scan, which I don't usually pay that much attention to, are all the new PACs that are forming. So one of them has been in the news a bunch, which um, is this guy named Deez Nuts, who's got a super PAC and another PAC. And it's a it's a horrible meme, but it's this like 15-year-old libertarian from Iowa who's running for president and basically anybody can throw their hat in the race and he's only 15 years old so he's a little too young but um you know like people throw money at all kinds of stuff so some of the other pack names that I wanted to throw out were that I read were uh, Mar Mar like Bill Mar 2016 Jeffrey Dahmer for president and these are all packs that I actually went and googled to try to find them online and there was only one that I found which was the brainslugpack.org you can find that there was the Force Awakens Pack, the Mythic History of America for America, and the Free Americans Against Nagging Imbeciles Pack. So these were just a few <laughs> what of about the, the ones. That, what about the Pac-Man Pack or the Mrs. Pac-Man Pack? <laughs> anybody can form a pack and anybody can raise money and they can give it to whomever they want. All right, Jigger, what do you have? So 
I just wanted to call everyone's attention to this article that Rob Day wrote in Green Tech Media around how Google and friends are killing clean tech startups without even trying. We talked about this in several podcasts, you know, on the Energy Gang, but to see Rob actually write it out in such clear a clear way and the comment section there, I think that anyone who, like, you know, cares about, you know, how Google could probably be a better steward in this industry should read this article. I thought you'd like that one. Um, just search for Rob Day on our site, greentechmedia.com, or I'll provide a link on our show notes. It really was a fantastic article and sort of backed up what we've been talking about. Um, as I mentioned before, quickly, I was on a trip in Stockholm this week for World Water Week, and I'd, I'd never been to Sweden. I didn't really have to travel around the rest of the country, but Stockholm was just so beautiful, so well-designed, this perfect blend of old and new um, I was completely enamored by the city. I was actually on a reporting trip with a bunch of international journalists sponsored by Stockholm. And no, I'm not saying how much I love the city because they helped pay for our travel. But um, it was a pretty cool trip because we got to travel all around and visit a bunch of companies in the area doing innovative things with water and energy. Uh, there's way too much to talk about. I visited a lot of different companies. And I'll put together a story sometime ne- next week. But one of the most interesting projects we saw was the city's water treatment plant which features this closed-loop system that treats the wastewater, filters phosphorus and nitrogen for use in agriculture, uses the sludge and uh, organic waste collected by the city for biogas production, and that biogas is used to power the city's vehicles. It is so cool to see that in action. It's a really elegant solution that a lot more cities are, are, are now considering and approaching Stockholm to learn more about. Sweden's actually backing the technology so that the companies can start selling them to the rest of the world. And as I said, I'll, I'll profile that in a story sometime next week. It, lastly, just I'll mention that the Junior World Water Prize was awarded to an American this year, uh, Perry Alagapan. He's an 18-year-old from Texas who built a filter out of uh, carbon nanotubes to take heavy metals from electric waste out of water. So I, I met Perry very briefly before the ceremony, right before he won. Neither of us had any idea he was going to win. And I just asked him about what his project was all about. And I was so impressed. Um, in fact, I was actually kind of intimidated because of his deep technical knowledge. I mean, an 18-year-old, this kid could go anywhere. It was really remarkable. And he's headed to Stanford, I think, in the fall. So uh, it was a good week for a good cause in a really excellent country. All right, that wraps us up. The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renesola. Check out the company's range of products, from solar panels to LEDs at renesola.us. The show is produced by Green Tech Media, and you can read our daily news, subscribe to our newsletter, read our research, and get all our back episodes at greentechmedia.com. If you haven't already, make sure to leave us a review on iTunes. It is crucial for helping us find new listeners, and we get a lot of new listeners from word of mouth too, so please send this to any colleagues or friends who you think might be interested. That is all for now. Catherine, enjoy the rest of your vacation. Soak it up while you can. Thanks. I'll be back in my regular old office next time we record. (laughs) Jigger, enjoy DC. I understand your wife is having a baby shower. Yes. Yes. We're going to have fun. All right. Well, enjoy DC and uh, safe travels home whenever you head back. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Music.